When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 167, Performance Design and Marketing with Richie Loke. I'm Matt, that's Mike, and this week we'll be talking to Richie about all things marketing, design, and more. So if this sounds interesting to you, because it should, and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And before we jump to the call, little formal introduction, if you will. Richie has a combined background in web development, design, and communication. He's currently the VP of product design and services at Wonderkind, a marketing cloud that works in the new field of performance design. Richie and his team employ design to the nth degree to provide one-to-one personalized marketing at a huge scale. On the more personal side, Richie is a New York history buff and board game collector, and he even built his own home and he baby-proofed it via a 3D printer when COVID shut down all the local stores. Now, I do want to note a little disclaimer for the listeners out there is we will be talking a fair bit about Wonderkind, but this episode is not sponsored at all by Wonderkind. I just wanted to do a deep dive into a marketing agency to see how they operate and to get through some of the weird sort of word soup that non-marketers like myself have a hard time understanding. And I wanted to discuss some of the newer, excuse me, newer terminology like performance design. So let's cut to that call right now. All right, everybody, we have Richie on the line here. And before we jump into this packed episode, Richie, how's it going? What's up? How's your COVID life going? And what have you been working on? Hey, hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, ooh, what's, how's it going? It's a weird couple of years of transition. Uh, I just recently moved back to New York over the last couple of months, uh, brought my children and my family back. And trying to live my best life back in New York and be back at the office a bit here and um, broadcasting out of the One World Trade Center, 74th and 75th floor. So right now it's been getting back to school, which is, uh, parents out there might really feel me. And then also um, work. So we have an incredible opportunity at Wonderkin um, and how we move forward and what we're up to. And I'm excited to I hope that something that gets to, comes to light through our conversation. So, um, yeah, anything else? Uh, more specifics well i was actually going to say so it's pronounced wonderkind not wonderkind right we um we believe in individuality i mean the brand is all about that personalization and specific and, and treating people like individuals i think you can say anything you want i mean the bundekin german is was originally kind of the ethos that we're as we were doing the branding and, and doing the naming uh but uh wonderkind or wonderkin so it doesn't matter okay cool um, well, I mean, we might as well just dive right in here because I actually have a bunch of questions for you. So, uh, I know Excited. that we, we, yeah, like we, we have, um, so we're the web, we're, we're in the web development crowd, uh, small business crowd, that type of stuff. And a lot of our, uh, side hustles and a lot of our, uh, small businesses and freelancing and all that, everyone always talks about marketing all the time, but it can be a little bit of word soup. So for anyone that doesn't work as a marketer, 
Can you explain what performance design is and uh, how it differs from normal, quote unquote, normal online uh, advertising, something like Google ads and so on? Are they even really related? Sure. Um, you probably haven't heard that term because I think that we made it up. Uh, my head oh, of customer experience, <laughs> my, my, my custom, head of customer experience, and as we define customer experience, we're not talking about the user, user experience, we're talking about the customer experience of what we deliver for our customer's customer, right? The, the actual end user. And um, performance design is a way we came up and talked about what the difference between, if you think about it, the triangle of what makes something good in design, right? There's a lot of ways you can characterize like quality or what is good, but I, uh, one way I heard it said one time by one of my favorite colleagues was that um, it has to look and feel the part, it has to be branded and to communicate that brand and and in that messaging and that promotion. That's one part. The second part is it has to function, it has to work and feel premium and feel like uh, the native web and and has to feel um, like something that people you know want to have in their own personal space, whether it's their phone or their computer and such. And then that third part is how does it perform. Uh, and I've known a lot of designers and design teams that um, they think about maybe one or two of these things. They don't think about three. And so um, as we're speaking to our clients and our customers, um, we think about a lot about how we're taking what is that, that company's brand and defining a version of that that's performance oriented, that's uh, strategic, and that has um, a quality to it that might just amp it up or amp it down or, or configure it in certain ways or translate in certain ways such that it can and it can perform in a certain way we have the advantage of we have a trillion impressions of knowing a lot of about all of our customers in some you know kind of really non-creepy way of like what generally works and what how things function how people use these things and so we can usually take a pretty good stab at translating what they think is their print or external brand and how they translate it to the web and taking it into these other places um like whether it's ad units or customization in the inbox or it's on site as little widgets and things or it's landing pages all that is an ecosystem that we would uh communicate for a client working with a client um and um i think we just categorically call that performance design and how would you say so you know you can lay out the the procedure there when the brand's established but how would you deal with someone so you know there's a sort of I guess it's a new form of media, which would be influencers, YouTubers, those type of uh, businesses, freelancers, those type of things. A lot of those people are literally individuals or very small teams, and a lot of them are just getting their footing in terms of they don't really know where they're at. They don't know whether they're a drop shipper yet. You know, sometimes they don't even know what industry they're in yet. And so the brand, like you said, you know, you, you take the brand and you kind of extract it and put it through your, your process. What would you say to someone who hasn't quite figured out the brand yet? Like, would you guys help them figure that out? Is it sort of more, a, you know, you need to figure out your brand a little more because it might take years for some of these people to develop into something that's like their brand, right? Yeah, um, I think we have, I mean, in most cases at this point, Wonderkin works with the biggest retailers in the world. So we don't, when someone does come to us where they don't have a really fully formed brand, it tends to be like a big box store or something that doesn't necessarily have, um, it, it's much more about like a discount quality that doesn't necessarily define itself. It's not necessarily an individual we we work with. And so, uh, but in that way that um, if they don't know exactly what their brand is and they don't know how to translate it into our system, we we do that as well. And we uh, we consult on that and we'd say, take the best parts of it or we take what our, what we call like our base um, product, you know, the pieces and parts of what we would do and deliver for them. And we would kind of translate them in a way that um, feels very 
very effective um, that isn't is a little less branded in that way, right? Or it, it gives traces or or specific customizations to it such that um, that they can feel that um, they got the performance part of it, and we've able to take and made it feel like a native part of who the brand is. Is that I hope answer your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it it. I guess I guess there's always like the there's always going to be um, brand changes even with bigger brands too right like I was thinking you know sure. the the situation doesn't necessarily reside just with uh, just with individuals or influencers I mean if you take a look at I mean random example but if you take a look at AOL AOL went from you know the biggest ISP or one of the bigger ISPs anyway in the 90s to now they're like a news site that's like kind of like what MSN became which you know it's crazy you know these bigger brands always change and change and change so. You know, it's good yeah. to hear the different processes for different brand evolutions, I guess you could say. Yeah, and we, we don't consider ourselves a branding company or a brand marketing uh, initiative. We're a strategic, right? And we're performance design is the, is the component that design studio adds to that. That's the strategy. Uh, but someone like a, a, a partner we've had, like Nike, Nike.com is interesting, where they have Nike.com and you assume that's Nike's, right? But mm-hmm. actually they have Jordan, they have, uh, they have Hurley's, they have Converse. They have Nike Plus running, right? And right. Like, those are completely different users. Those are completely different personas. And even within those, there's a lot of different difference, uh, differences in how you communicate to people differently. And so as Wonderkin's saying, we're going to take your brand and we're going to filter through our systems and prepare and build and, and make different messaging and different communicate to the, your, your, the customer experience, the customer at the end user uh, differently. We also have to think through the lens of all those different types of permutations. And so um, that was an interesting uh, use case or something like even geo-targeted. If we're working with like someone like Gannett, where they own, you know, 140, I think, 120 newspapers, those are all geos or all over the United States. So they have a little bit different character to them and they have a slightly different, uh, uh, you know, version of the quote unquote brand uh, of each of those newspapers. But generally strategic, we're doing maybe something very common and reusable. But thinking about those geos and those promotions differently is, is something that we do. And so I guess um, in some ways, uh, we're not necessarily setting out to create a unique and different experience. We're trying to take what works, what people know about that brand, and and, and uh, apply it to many different mechanisms by which we can make sure we're communicating that that cut consumer, that end user, is uh, specifically to them as possible and make sure they're very comfortable with that messaging. It doesn't feel robotic. It feels very like organically assembled um, in that way. Right. And I'm sure that's critical, especially for those larger brands, because like you said, they have so many they have so many different sub brands that it should feel organic, regardless, even though, the, you know, the Jordans versus like the base Nike brand, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be t- totally different. Like you said, different demographics and yada, yada. So, you know, having the organic yeah. feel or, is or, yeah, go ahead. a fascinating one. Uh, just a real life example would be Countdown to the jerseys when when uh, when Nike got the NBA jerseys, that was a big deal. And we're driving a whole bunch of traffic to their site. And they want to make sure that they're converting and selling people uh, in jerseys that want to get jerseys. And that's a very different, almost really specific market, a really specific part of their brand that we're speaking very uh, uniquely to. And so that was a like an interesting case where um, even within these like fibers of who is uh, Nike, um, it's a it's a complex um, web of users and different personas and different groups of types of, whether some people used to call them six segments and such, but um, I find that really fascinating. So. Trying to, that's generally what we do. I mean, using performance and uh, understanding the users and, and trying to translate that to people so that we give them a very unique and specific message and experience for that brand. 
And I think this I think this translates or this uh, transitions well into the next question. So th- so for the, the second one here, um, you know, browsing the Wonderkind website, you know, I'm seeing phrases like, quote, where web traffic becomes a living, becomes living, breathing customers whose wants and needs can be met with a with unique uh, tree, uh, end quote, and so on. Uh, and the homepage mentions that Wonderkind is for uh, retailers, publishers and travel. Now, this is just a very small, ex- small sample of what is on the Wonderkind website. There's tons of pages on there, tons of content on there. So. Sure. Can you, because those are the those are the phrases and those are the areas that kind of stood out to me. Can you boil down exactly what Wonderkind does and what type of customers? Although we did touch on this already a little bit, but what type of customers? So influencers, big companies, or small businesses should be interested in Wonderkind's services? So yeah, I can answer this in three different ways. I think one is the way that I tell my mom. <laughs> one is the way I talk about it internally <laughs> to like marketing people, and I think I could also talk about it in the way that a consumer, like the end consumer, like you, you folks. Everybody that's listening to this call probably uses our software every day, just don't know that. And so how they should feel really comfortable with that, right? And I think those are three different versions of what we do uh, to different users. It's, it's very much like a layered cake, right? And so what my mom needs to know, my, my family, is that um, the world's changing and how we shop online, how we shop in general. And a lot of that's online. And um, most of these, even the biggest retailers are getting, they're in risk of losing margin um, where most of what people are buying and doing is on Amazon, right? And why Amazon? Amazon's a technology company that delivers services, but you wouldn't necessarily go to Gucci, uh, go to like TJ Maxx to buy Gucci or something, right? Or go to like a Sam's Club to buy something like that. So when you go to Gucci.com, it should be a very premium Gucci experience because you're spending a lot of money, high margin items. And if you go to just to shop for that on Amazon, you might get a better price, but you don't get the Gucci experience, right? And so, what we find is that the closing the gap, the technology gap of what makes Amazon very successful, and I could, I have a handful of reasons why they are, and I think you guys could surmise some other reasons why, uh, so that these brands can stay in business and sell their own products their own way and allow them to focus more on selling their products and not about the intelligence of the technology. And so we should be that technology, we, we, we should close that technology gap for other retailers and publishers and travel and other different places we're at such that we can, um, you can compete against some of these giant, um, you know, tech companies. And so um, we've always been good fortune where we're like kind of floating under the radar. We've not taken a lot of money and been out there in the, in the public, but our partners are these biggest retailers and they want to just make sure that they have the intelligence, the understanding um, of in, and the technology that they can do that and they can make, um, they're not losing, you know, more than half their margins to selling somewhere into some big box store. And so that's the, kind of to my mom. And I think that makes sense from a business standpoint. You can kind of just, even if you're not even in the business, you can see that like that's a trend and those people really need help and we specialize in that. Now there's the other part, which is the consumer experience, right? Mm-hmm. As we talked about three parts. And so from you, a consumer experience, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, if this is, I mean, I can just keep using Gucci because that's an interesting and really precise, weird brand that's I think people understand at different levels is that if we understand who they are and we have a partner with them, we can take and take pieces of who they think they are, how they're communicating either from a brand voice and a brand visuals. And we can take a, a, one of our designers um, on the customer experience team to translate that into our system in a way that we can then um, take key indicators, like almost like uh, brand tokens, we would call them in some cases, where you can make certain decisions about things and then reassemble them um, on site in your inbox or text messaging or a whole bunch of places in the future and assemble those in a moment's notice to make sure that 
the message that might be coming to you, the promotion that might be specifically to you uh, because you specifically uh, signed up for a specific bag or you know, you've, you're on the email list and we think that you wanted to buy this thing that we can speak to you precisely of what you are interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an uncanny Valley world out there. That's not so bright where it's people are putting these things together and they're doing these robotic marketing campaigns and it feels robotic and it doesn't feel like that, that first party, uh, communication. And we're trying to also prepare for that future where it doesn't feel that way. We're, we're taking cues from this brand and we're going to give this end user consumer experience, which is exactly what they want. And so I think some of the best examples of personalization are maybe uh, Instagram ads or something where it's almost like sometimes too uncanny of what they're giving you and recommending you. But generally, you're pretty excited about it because it's things you're actually really interested in. And the worst thing to advertising is stuff that's just noise. And we try to remove that noise around what you want to see and what you want to buy and try to put you in a position where we can speak to you more specifically. And so that's the customer experience part. Uh, the third would be to marketers, right? Or like maybe uh, us as design professionals. Um, yeah, we have this understanding what creative data is out there uh, for this brand. We have an understanding of a little bit of uh, who are these customers, even if they're anonymous, we can kind of understand where they are in the funnel and what kind of users they are. And then we can assemble and put these things together in a way to give them a really specific um, uh, brand experience and a translation of that. And that tends to convert at a higher rate than giving people all the same thing. And so if we can say that there's 10,000 different permutations of what you could get going to Gucci.com, we just got to know where part of that tree uh, of, of thinking and logic and such that you are such that we could be, you know, more actively uh, understanding you as a user, that that's really powerful. Um, I mean, if you think about most retailers and most online sites, uh, 3% of the people actually convert or buy anything. They're just window shoppers. Right. And so what we, the benefit we come in from business would be say, uh, we have a guarantee you pay us X amount of dollars. We can triple that. And so we can basically say, um, we can increase your, you know, the window shoppers know exactly who actually have a high intent to buy. We have kind of an algorithm to know like these individuals feel like, Real shoppers, not just window shoppers. So we can give them a more premium, a really specific thing that prepares them for the things that we already thought they might buy. And that they tend to buy much more of it. So we can maybe increase that conversion rate from like that two or three or 4% up a couple more percentage, which all of a sudden we just, you know, increase these brands revenue by 50%, um, by just some of those little nuances. Um, those are the kind of the three different ways of explaining Um do you guys have questions about it? There's a lot there. Yeah, actually, I'll just jump in here. I, I think you explained it really, really well. And uh, yes. first of all, yeah, you killed it. First of all, <laughs> I really, really like your website. I'm just taking a look at it right now. Uh, kind of did a kind of did a little bit of a deep dive on it. It's a fantastic website. People should 100% check it out. Wonderkid.co, just for anyone that's listening. Or Wunderkid, you know, uh, however however you pronounce it, doesn't matter. Wonderkid.co. Yeah, we got the .com. We got it in the... Um... It's coming, but um, it was in the bankruptcy. We were waiting for the legal stuff to go through. But yeah, excited about that because um, <laughs> that getting that M will feel really complete, you know? <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll roll uh, put everything into one kind of thing. But I, I like the code, to be honest. I, I like the uh, the different abbreviations. But regardless, oh, cool. the dot com will be awesome. Uh, but really what <laughs> I what I wanted to kind of latch on to was that first party communication comment that you made where you're trying to make it so that when you're receiving a marketing email, it doesn't sound like it's coming from a robot. And I think that's really key. And I just in our own perspective, we have a Twitter, we have a Twitter account before we took it kind of seriously, we were kind of treating it as almost a third party communication tool where we were just kind of like putting announcements on there uh, about like, hey, this podcast episode was released. And then a few months ago, I kind of took it and decided to put a first party approach to it where I went in, 
you know, talked to people one-on-one, commented on people, and was just like a regular person as our account. And the difference in success was exponential. Like we just we just crossed 10K followers on there uh, and we, we had only 300 starting. So the problem that I'm seeing right now, though, is like, how do you get that in between? Because obviously you can't have someone in a brand like Gucci or a brand like, you know, a, a larger Nike brand or something like that, that's able to provide that first party feel to every single customer, right? Even in a social media landscape or in an email marketing landscape. How do you have that like in between, I guess, is my question. Yeah, um, we're trying, number one. I think that we can't. I think there's not that much uniqueness to the, you know, how many permutations or I call them variants that you would have. You're talking specifically, maybe the Twitter example is much more like strategic copy. Uh, but human nature is such that you want to make sure you're feeling communicated and you're communicating with and they're communicating, you know, you actually have like a, a dialogue there. Um, I don't think every individual in the world needs a completely unique experience, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we're all individual snowflakes or whatever that generally we fall within certain patterns and that's pretty close enough. And where's that sweet spot? Where was the 80, 20? And so I think we have a system and I think we'll continue over the next whatever period of time it is uh, with our new offerings here shortly, we'll be really good at that. So it, it gets, it's that sweet spot in the way that it's everything you'd want from a personalization without the creepy. Um, and it's still anonymous in a way that you feel really comfortable and it feels personal. And so um Quite honestly, our founder is a very amazing marketer and strategist and really understands a consumer and understands what they want and what they're thinking about at different levels and trying to, instead of recreating what a web experience, really, I mean, everything we do on web still is, is trying to recreate the brick and mortar, you know, it's all really based in the nineties. But we're, when you step back from that and you think about how people really want to be shopped to, and I've worked many retail jobs through sending myself to college and stuff, whether selling shoes or running a car wash or working all kinds of jobs. And just knowing that um, your best is when you're really speaking to someone direct and specific and you know who they are and you know a little bit about them and making sure that they're very comfortable with that and knowing what not to say to people. And that's, I think, a big part of what we do as well, which is the, the, in some ways um, we're, we were guilty of the trend because um, inventing the idea of like a pop-up modal, you know, on that, no one should see that unless they want that. We have an algorithm by which we would show that to certain people at certain times. But now you see everywhere you constantly closing these freaking windows, right? really missing the understanding of like what that should be for, which is in the right moment, the right time, there's a certain kind of message some people want and they want to have it and they want to be very urgently expressed to them in a certain way. And that is one of the mechanisms historically we use. And now it's just kind of become pervasive on the internet and misunderstood and misused in the way that some kind of like pop up. But this idea that um, if you're speaking to people uniquely and specifically, um, I don't think it has to be like, I think the question was kind of like, how do we, where's that sweet spot? I think it's just testing with data and knowing and trying a lot of different things and seeing how they get assembled and using a little bit of artificial intelligence, machine learning. Like we can throw huge data sets at people and, and people feel pretty comfortable about it. It's not going to be uncanny and robotic. My hope is and the key language I'm going to use again, which is like, it's going to feel very organic because we have enough key um, brand tokens of different key things that we're reassembling in certain ways that that feels very much like um, when it's all assembled, it feels very organically assembled. It doesn't feel robotic in the way it's speaking to you. And so whether it's language being pieced together or put together in that way. Um, and so I also think this is marketing and this is strategic things. This isn't necessarily like a, a we're not speaking to the level of like, you need to talk about your deepest, darkest secrets. You know, it's 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 in a really specific place where I think we can um, leverage, understand um, different types of users differently and put together in a way that feel, people will continue feeling like, like they want to convert more and, and, and buy things. Um, so I hope that answers um, in some roundabout way. 
No, I think I think I get that. I, th- I think it makes sense that you you kind of the, the whole thing is trial and error a little bit, as well as a little bit of machine learning in there. So you don't you have your own proprietary stuff that you use. I don't know if it's tech or if it's just like you know a marketing genius, uh, but regardless, you have a way to gauge what the person will will treat as organic essentially and we'll see as organic rather than a robotic kind of automated email that everyone receives so it, it is almost an expertise thing more than anything else and I'm, I'm like you can learn it i'm sure everyone out there that's that's in the marketing industry or wants to get in i'm sure it's something that you can sure. learn but it, you've got to put some effort into it it's not an easy thing so yeah, yeah that's an I might, interesting I, take mm-hmm. i can lay out to those different layers if you'd like um of, of what i see as the different whether it's expertise or what we're testing or what different, like uh, I almost call it like the layer cake of, of the decision-making. And that might be interesting to your, to your listeners. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. So you talked about expertise. Yes. We have one of the greatest um, person to sell things is, you know, all the way from the very early days of the internet uh, is our founder and a friend and a colleague of mine. And so ground one, we have a leg up in understanding users and understand. Cool. That's cool. But on top of that, we've got a lot of data. We've done this for now, you know, nine years where we also understand generally what works. We know internet convention, we know speaking to a very HTML uh, and CSSC kind of web development audience. Uh, we know generally what works and how things work on the web. And so you take that and then we take pieces and parts of that, that we were always reassemble and use kind of like our standard base deliverables, whether it was like certain uh, interactive things or certain kind of chunks of brands or like little grids or things that we might do that you see maybe on category pages or in emails and such. We, we have different language and taxonomy for like categories of how these things are. And then next level is um, you might have an individual unique pr- uh, promotion. So you want to filter that in to, to inform that. And at that end, uh, when we're about to do the assemblage <laughs> and we're putting those things together, um, we also have a lot of times a, um, a human, right? In some cases, definitely uh, where we're integrating this in the first couple rounds with that client, where we have a great uh, performance designer that takes a look at the entire ecosystem and looks at like what's 200 plus permutations and variability of how this can look and feel and make sure that we give a human eye to it because there's this whole other level of fit finish, we call it, where we are make sure we're, you know, we're, we're, we are, there's a human there and making sure that the system comes out in a way that we put some inputs in there where they might tweak and do stuff. So it feels even more, uh, personalized and specific for different promotions and such. And so that layer of things, and then they all inform each other, right? With different data or different testing or different promotions. I hope that that illustrates kind of like the different um, levels of the of the stack of what we're delivering for the customer experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think our listeners will, you know, any sort of layouts like that are always really helpful. You know, like point form, you know, here's, you know, we do this, we do this, we do this. Definitely, uh, definitely helpful in like sort of understanding the, the, the bigger picture. Because as we've said before, you know, some of this stuff can be word soup, but also you said you, you guys have years and years of experience years and years of data, tons of data. And so like you guys are in it. And so, you know, it's hard to break it down unless you do break it down into the individual steps. Right. So absolutely very helpful for the for the listener out there. Um, but moving on to the, uh, the next question here. Um, so, uh, from your one sheet, Richie, um, I saw a phrase in there. So, uh, quote design as a visual problem solving medium end quote. And that really stood out to me. So like, what, what do you mean by that? What, what exactly does that mean? Oh, I'm glad you asked. It's been the top of mind this last week. Um, so I believe that and I even have a mission statement I wrote recently trying to distill it. I think even more um, as we as a company moving forward with each department, we have a company mission statement. We have started having more um, specific departmental mission statements. 
I just thought about it almost like pull it down. And I can give you exactly how I wrote it. And then I can go into detail more when it's less prepared, if you like. But um, as it is right now, I, I believe that design, the design rigor that, that supports the, a process is different. The visual, especially with visual meaning and visual problem solving is a really particular tool. And there's different stages there. And I think they're common. And I think when you do design at all these different stages and you do it well, it's, it's really magical. I think our designers on the line uh, listening would, would, would feel that, right? It's almost like a, um, it's a curve and a process. And I've worked in engineering teams and, and I think there's a, it's different. It, it's uh, this idea that um, there's a, a rigor of, of uh, invention, envisioning, where I think designers in a lot of cases are the best person out front to hear great ideas and to put them into practice and make sense of them so that people that are less visual can, can organize them. I think there's another step called, you know, that I'm actually learning kind of late in the game a bit of just to, if you have a really good um, design research and, and some individuals and specific great UX researchers can distill and understand a problem and go through it and use design and then visuals to organize those things. Um, for whether it's for product or engineering or, or something else. Um, that step two is incredibly important. And uh, the visual solutions to those things, which I think what most people would think from design, which is, how does it look, right? How does it work? How does it look? What is the experience? And then I do feel like one of the, to be most successful, it's the handoff. It's the visual specifications. And so if you work with a great dev team, you don't always feel this because you have a good process to hand it off. But um, for web design, like, like what is that? It's not just making it look a certain way. It's getting that to be, um, uh, implemented in a certain way to feel and work well, not just on paper and in the abstract, but really specifically in real practice and real use. And so those four stages of the, the creative process for, and I call design, and I think design is like you know, art with a purpose, right? So in that way, um, I think go across all different types of design. I, I have a customer experience team. We have a user experience team. We're working on these other design teams, whether it's the brand design team that you go through these kind of four functions. And so, um, Design as a visual problem-solving medium, if you can go through those steps and those stages, I think with a real purpose in mind of what you're trying to solve, I think it's incredibly powerful. And so often people think and they see just the output or the solution or they want to put it on a website and they just want to you know, be critical of that logo or whatever. Um, but there's so much work that goes into how they got there and what the problems are actually solving. And I think design is underestimated sometimes of how well they can help my colleagues maybe in the financial side right or doing the analytics side of like making sense of some of that information or 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 moving forward with um a way to aligning around it so so often we have uh, really good spirited conversations in the company here at WonderCon where we're, we're disagreeing and then we realize we just didn't align around something i found more and more design can be the medium by which people come together and can really nail down specifics and and use and going through this like design um uh, problem solving as a medium really helps um, communicate that. So uh, maybe I went too long-winded to, to explain that. I'm very passionate about that. And more and more, I think if you skip some of that stages or you're not a partner in that, um, you do your colleagues a disservice as well. No, it definitely that definitely speaks to me, especially because we went to, so kind of going back to our college days, but we went for computer engineering technology. And we had... Um, we, de we definitely like saw our fair share of people that were, you know, purely, let's say, engineering focused. And so they would build their circuits or build their devices or build their whatever without really any, this isn't web development, but without any really UI, UX, you know, thought really. So at the end of the day, you know, we, or at the end of the course, we had to build a, a, a device. It's sort of like build a prototype level consumer electronic, because obviously you can't, 
you know, do all the branding and stuff. That'd be that'd be way out of a college student's budget. But build like a prototype level one that would be like, you know, yep. one before it goes to, to market. And so many people had like just like just crazy, you know, user interfaces. The software was awkward, this and that. And it really makes you think about, especially now that we're in web development, you know, how much it does go. Like we've had people say, oh, we need to go get our logo done. You know, you know, give us a little bit. And it's, you know, three, four, five weeks. And it's like, what's going on? Like, did they forget? And you message them and it's like, oh, no, we're working on it. And you just really don't think about, you know, how many iterations did they go through? And then how many um, considerations have they been making to put that logo in this website layout that we've, you know, put together type of thing. And then there's also the the push and pull of, you know, the designer wants this color, but the engineer knows that, you know, screen readers or um, certain screens or whatever won't render that properly or it won't be read properly on a screen reader. And so it's like, no, we need to change that color. So there's the push and pull. And it at the end of the day, it will make a um, it'll make something that's I would say more uh, streamlined than utilitarian. Whereas like on the engineering side, it's usually just utilitarian, um, at least from my experience anyway. Um, so like, like absolutely, like it's, it's critical to kind of talk about that because I know, like you said, like a lot of people will, will come out and say, Hey, this, you know, this logo sucks. Or like they'll go to somebody's like uh website and be like, man, like why did they do the titles like this? But they don't realize that that might've been like 10 meetings, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, to get there. And like, that's why they chose the font. And it was like a, almost an, an argument between all the different sides, uh, engineering and design and this and that. So. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. Those are good examples. I would say, I would just want to broaden, make sure that the, the, your audience is hearing me say a very broad definition design here where it could be communicating um, something to a client in a pitch, right? It's it's communicating who we are as a brand. It's not just that like pixel pushing export mm-hmm. of a little graphic or whatever. For instance, we have design engineers, right? Like we have people creating and going through this process within the engineering of creating and making. It's just the medium isn't necessarily Photoshop, Figma or Sketch. It's, it's you know, we're using HTML and CSS to build really specific experience things and such. And they are in the, within the design team, right? They're, they're venting and creating. And so I use that, I make clear the design very loosely as like the visual problem solving as a medium. And so architects, I mean, we work with, you know, building new offices. We're, we're working with the architects through a similar process. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 really is like just a part of it, it, it really is just like a part of everything, right? It's like, it, it, it's the difference between like seeing somebody like Jerry rig, even something as simple as like a door together in their house versus like someone actually putting in a nice design door. Um, yeah. You can, you can tell the difference, you know, w- both function, but one is smoother and nicer, if you will. It's a, if done properly, it's a true discipline for problem solving. And that's goes back to your original question, right? Um, I've seen it done really well or really poorly in like an ops team. If you work at a company that has like its own dedicated ops team where they they take on almost like consultant wise, like a problem in the company and they go through like a whole curve of what they're trying to solve for whatever. And it's not always, it's, it seems close to what we do in design, but it's uh, this idea of like the problem solving the men and trying to get these solutions out that, that they see as like uh, solving that specific problem. That's the closest thing I would think of. And then we've, it, within Wonderkin found that we have become a really good partner for some of those initiatives because we can help them visualize that, you know, that initiative or that curve of things or that invention of things or communicating it then to their stakeholders as well. So design is it's kind of I'm synonymous with just communication in my life, visual communication. I want, I want to put a little bit of more emphasis on this, actually, because I've, I've had recent conversations with like backend engineers and front end engineers that are very against learning design, I think. Um, in the sense that they're just like, oh, I'm not artistic, so I'm not going to learn it. And I always push back on that because I think to be a good engineer of any kind, 
you've got to at least dabble a little bit in the design mindset, like you were saying, the design engineering mindset, because if you're just going to put design on the back burner and never think about it, like you said, those internal tools and those internal tools are going to bleed out into the real world. That's the thing. Like a lot of times people will start using them and then maybe someone will pick up on a UX pattern and then all of a sudden it's in your banking website. I bank, I always go back to the banking websites because a lot of the UX on those banking websites isn't the greatest. Mm-hmm. And that it's, it's seen that like they did not, you know, hire a, a, a design professional or a design company that helped them throughout their process of designing UX. Now, some of them are great. Obviously, I'm not saying all banking websites, but there's some that have just been really difficult to use. So. I think it's really important if you're out there and you're a engineer and you're so anti-design, just step back. It's all a skill. It's something you can learn and just spend a little bit of time on it. Spend the time wrapping around it. Just like when I, just like I suggest to a front end engineer to understand a little bit of back end, I always recommend a front end engineer and a back end engineer to understand a little bit of design. And again, it doesn't have to be pixel pushing design. It can be the design process. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, there's like two parts to it. It's like the, um, uh, the visual organization, definitely really helpful for any engineer, especially front-end engineers, just to be able to organize their thoughts or get things organized. But then it's also this, like I said, like the, the rigor of going through some of this process of problem solving exactly what this user is using it for. What is it, you know, um, it could, you know, it's very close. I mean, my, to our colleagues, industrial designers and stuff that I work with as well, they, they, they talk about it very similar as web designers. Um, yeah, it's kind of like you got to make a, just like, and I would say it's in designers, right? They need to find the engineering buddy to learn more about how how they uh, get to their process as well. I can only imagine on those banking sites, just to add a little bit of salt in there, <laughs> but I can only imagine on those banking sites, like if I was the IT guy, since like all of us have been in IT at one point or another, if I was the IT guy, I'd be like, guys, we're not changing this button. Like we just got this secure because you're you're scared, right? Because everything's for the everything's like banking. So you're like, I don't want to ruin someone's like $100 million deal. So it's like, guys, we're not changing this. We're leaving this alone. And I bet you there's a lot of, conflicts between the engineering guys that are like this is secure just leave it and the engineering or the uh design guys that are like no no no, like let's change it up a little bit i can i can see that conflict being huge in that type of industry you know when i've found the best uh communication between those really strong voices are is the best example where it's coming together really beautifully is as we've been starting to do much more of, of moving stuff from sketch and such to figma and we're building big design systems not just for our customer work but our actual internal work or our internal tools and such um, we are communicating and organizing things much closer to than ever to what the front end team's doing for their component libraries whether it's you know the react components and whatnot and so we almost starting getting closer and closer where we have this common language and it's so close and similar of like that that actual on the ground pixel delivered thing that we're even considering ways to sync them or use them. I'm not sure if that actually saves as much time and energy as it as it, as it actually feels like just like elegant to, to try to do. But um, I would I think that that communication is getting closer and closer with the systems. When you think about not just as like we're doing a logo or we're doing this one little hero image or we're designing for this one, but when you think about it as design as a system or brand as a system, and you're interpreting them as like a big giant like uh, uh, brand. Uh, patterns and such. Um, it's very close to, I think, what a lot of the front end uh, uh, developers or engineers are on the line might be considering and thinking about how to reuse things, smart ways of implementing them, how to scale them and use them at scale. Um, and then also how to like make edits and 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 um, maintenance to those things over a long time, make them very useful. So I don't know if you guys have talked about that in other recordings or whatever, but I find that there's a really beautiful synergy or <laughs> synergy, but the with synchronicity of these things come together at a moment in time right now, it's really beautiful, actually. 
Absolutely. And, you know, you know, we're talking about a lot of concepts, so lots of different, um, lots of different you know, ways to do things and like lots of, lots of different, uh, procedures. So, you know, could you just quickly, you know, real brief lay out what a day in the life at Wonderkind is like for you and your team? So I know you guys have already mentioned that, you know, there's a little bit of technical stuff, a little bit of marketing, but like, what do you guys like? What's a day in the life? Is it a lot of meetings? Do you deal with multiple customers? Is it one team per customer? Like, how does it all work? I could talk about this all week because I do, but I would say for your audience, um, kind of paint a picture of a day in life for a couple different users. Um, first of all, I'm we're very fortunate to have a brand that really supports individuals and uniqueness of every individual to our customers, our users, and then also internally. And so I think it's a really wonderful and nurturing environment where um, we bring in really top talent and we hope that, that there's opportunities for them to just be their best and first self and come in as their unique and best person each day. And so I think that just kind of starts as an, uh, starts a day with like um, everybody comes in as, a, as an equal and very much like our, our peers. And we just feel like this like sense of, I hope um, uh, a common goal and, and a lot less of the stress and politics of things kind of get thrown aside. So day one, I think it's where we all kind of come in with like, I think a really beautiful work environment part. Uh, maybe then like we might have, um, so the customer experience team, the designers that might, um, develop and translate um, on top of our technologies, clients' needs, they would um, be assigned to clients, um, sometimes permanently or sometimes, you know, as needed to um, integrate that. We call it like brain integration and working through those clients' needs through a customer success person and, and uh, strategist. And so they'll take on um, behind the scenes that technical and visual job of translating that into all these different mediums, whether it's, um, we have like our internal prototyping tools, similar to like a Figma where they might apply these different brand qualities to different things. Um, and then they save that off. And then they might prepare in the future, different promotions and different graphics and different things and different experiences that might fit in for different um, for needs later to be assembled. Um, so that's the customer experience person. They just do that all the time, right? Uh, they take on new clients. They're really, uh, they're a little bit client facing, but a lot of times it's very much internal strategist performance design. Then there's a UX team and different design team where they're thinking about how to build simple yet powerful tools to do that at scale faster. One of our biggest issues as a company is growth. We cannot grow fast enough and that's a problem. You just need to hire more people and there's not that, you know, how many more people can we sustain, right? Uh, we're mm -hmm. growing into many different uh, verticals and such and different, or excuse me, different geos and such and different offices. And so um, that's, that's uh, the UX team has to build those better and more powerful tools. And then there's the other brand and, and other parts of the design team that are probably more internal and specific to us, but day in the life, um, you know, we have a really open work environment where people are kind of headphones on and we're just cranking through it. And um, then we meet and have incredible after hours, uh, open bar party connect and just try to like really feel out that energy. So I don't know, not too uncommon. I think it's just more the quality of people to come in and what we're, we're laser focused on. We have like a week, uh, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly goals and mission statements and individuals. And we have a career, expectations of every individual so that we can help them kind of feel out their next steps and kind of what they're doing day to day and how that fits into a much bigger long-term initiative as a company. So that's all a little bit out there in the, in the uh, ether a little bit. I don't think that's really specific. I can go in more specifics if you have questions. I was about to say you are, uh, you guys are a heck of a lot more organized than me. <laughs> I mean, as I guess as a small business, you're kind of wearing all the hats, right? But uh, yeah, you guys, you guys know what you're, I don't even know what I'm doing after this. So, you know, it's one of those, <laughs> I'm one of those guys, but, uh, but yeah, like it sounds like you guys really have it uh, like sort of nailed down and um, 
Uh, one one thing I was going to ask, actually, which is kind of a combination of an, of like the next question I was going to ask, but you know how how much so how much does say a customer interact with with you guys? So this would kind of affect the day in the life as well, like for because I know you said you have different teams and the you know on the customer facing side and, and and et cetera. How much does it? How much does a customer you know come 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 to you? So. Is it sort of like a at a high level? Because I'm sure this it's pretty detailed. But at a high level, like if a customer comes to you, brand new customer, never work with them, you guys do your whole procedure and all that, and then you know you guys come up with a plan and here's the marketing that we'd like to do, and you know this is what we'd like to do, and you know for the design and all this, is that customer now sort of just like is your side of things now on autopilot for that customer, or is there someone that's constantly? taking calls like i'm sure there's someone there to take a call but like is it something where they constantly call you like every week and say hey we got new sneakers to sell hey we got new sunglasses to sell or is it just more or less on autopilot after that like how does that work in with a sort of longer term customer um that's a good question um we have a lot of different types of clients that have a lot of different needs we try to not be a one-size-fit-all kind of organization but i would preface and say i would call what you're talking about i think you're talking about clients and then rather than customers our clients, because uh, I use customer really specifically, which is like you guys are my customer more than the people I'm working with. Does it make sense? Right? The customer experience team is developing deliverables for the end user. So in the client sense, we are um, we do that integration. A lot of it's out of the box. And we, we've we used, I mean, historically, I worked with the founder and other companies and such. And there's a lot of marketing tools out there. And historically, you pay a lot of money for these tools. And you don't always find time to use them or to make sense of them. And it's really not that valuable to you. So we always had an ethos of, we will get you up and running and we'll do most of the hard work for you because no one has time for that, <laughs> right? That you're hiring us to do that. So if you're paying us this chunk of money, we guarantee we're going to give you the, um, even more money back. Um, you know, uh, we can, uh, so we do much more uh, almost like full service for certain clients. Now there's an opportunity to continue moving in and giving those them more options and places, different tools by which they're modifying, changing and, and managing those things themselves. But, but um, I think that some of the value is that um, what we do is complicated and we do it really quickly and effectively and fast. And so in a lot of cases, a client wants to be up and running fast. We might get that all set up for them. And then once it's set up, we call it like uh, forever green, <laughs> you know, it's running, uh, but they'll have different promotions and such, you know, if Cyber Monday Black Friday is coming up, it's like our Super Bowl, right? Like we historically in a different era of the company invented those cock, you know, those, those promo codes of, uh, of countdowns to different promotions and things. Um, all those things are, uh, those are not uh, forever or forever green. <laughs> uh, they are uh, ephemeral. And so those needs come up and brands change their branding, right? And they need different um, updates to that. Um, and so we're there to support them. And then we're also giving them better tools to do some of the, the promotions and customization themselves. And so I think there's, it's, um, it's, it depends, it's all over, the, all over the place in that way. What we are not is what you would call a true set where you pay us money and you just do it all yourself. Um, we will have parts of that offering. We'll continue to do parts of that. We have different platforms and stuff where we do little pieces of that. But the value and the huge value we're driving is very much so that it's done in a way we do it pretty successfully over and over again that we can do it almost more effectively ourselves for a customer. And so that can be sometimes frustrating. It's, it feels a little too black box in some cases. Um, and we're working to make sure we can communicate what that value we're driving but they're very happy at the end of the month when we, you know, look at their GA and such, and we, we've exceeded our guarantee. You know, we're we're they're, we're, they're making more money than we told them they would. Um, and so um, the money talks a bit. Uh, 
Well, that's good to hear, honestly, because like one of the things that we've actually done a couple of times now is for people that uh, for our clients, what we've actually done for people is they'll come to us and say, hey, you know, I worked with X agency and they got me all set up with a website and everything. And they gave me all this software and they're charging, you know, $12,000 a month or something crazy. And uh, we're like, OK, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're trying to sell like like dog food. And it's just like localized, like made out of somebody's basement. It's like, well, well hang on a second, 12,000. You go and you look and they gave them like all this software and all this. And I'm like, whoa, what? Are, like, are you using any of this? Or, like, we don't even know what that is. Yeah. And it's exactly. sort of like, you know, and it's like, I and I don't know what it is. <laughs> like, it take me a few yeah. days to like figure out what's going on. That's precisely like, um, yeah, my history in, in marketing technologies before this, which was a lot of cool technologies out there. And you don't have time for that. Right. Um, you have you. And so if you can think about, and it goes back to like a design problem solving, if you know precisely what a goal, what your goal with for a client or what your goal with the customer, and you can just set goals around that and you can be really precise about like, you know, you know, people talk about KPIs, key performance indicators of, are you hitting those goals? For us, a lot of time it is um, the head of marketing at wherever, whatever big brand you can think of, what is their goal? Well, they need to, for the CEO or for the board, make X amount of dollars at the end of the month, right? What is that? They need to make push this much product, you know, $2 million worth of tank tops or something, right? And so if we know that, and they know that, that that's a goal that they want to do, we can make that part of our data as well, that we can just kind of sell it, not as a software as a service, but as revenue as a service. And you would say, okay, if, you know, assuming that that's going to make you this much money, we can put it stuff into place to do that and make that much money for you to meet your goals. And um, we will actually, if you give us this amount of money, we will exceed that and we'll make you three you X know, or four X that there's very few places out there in the marketplace where you can say, I'll put money in, you get a guaranteed return. Um, you know, some people might say the stock market over time. Uh, the other two historically have been Google ads and Facebook ads, right? You feel like there's some amount of guaranteed return of effectiveness. And historically we sell against them as like the top channels to say, um, if you, there's a real return here that we can guarantee or we don't have to pay us. And so um, that's a really, important um that you know that turns heads sometimes with some of these companies and um, very seldom do we not make that guarantee and we make sure that and that's that's part of our business so uh, i don't use talk business but that was kind of fun uh i don't know uh is that i hope that answers your question yeah absolutely you know the i'm i'm, I'm a fun uh, i'm a fan of buzzwords and revenue as a service would turn heads i'd be like what's that guy talking about over there you know absolutely yeah. uh, guiding people because i'm like as mike and i know we've spent like probably hundreds of hours over our career at this point, ripping out software that people are like, I don't know what this is. I'm paying $4,000 a month for this. Like, all right, let's rip. The, like if you're not using it, you don't plan on, let's just rip it out. So it's good to see like a more guided experience and something that, you know, you guys are backing up literally with the dollars. So. Yeah. We, we kind of talk about it as um, you know, some people say they're a marketing cloud where the data lives and they're doing whatever strategic things. We kind of always think about it as like the marketing operating system, which if we can build things in a way where we have partners, we're not doing everything ourselves. A lot of this technology partners and different, you know, different pipes from many different places uh, that your web development and engineers, I don't want to name any names, know of uh, where they're, you know, whether it's ESPs or DSPs and all these places. Um, if we can be the, the the connecting tissue there, and there's a lot of value there, that that's, that's a very interesting and uh, place to be where um, people are logging in to do a whole myriad of different um, types of strategic things as what they call their marketing, right? And allow them to go back to the, and start just selling their product, right? Selling tank tops, selling Gucci or whatever. They make good products. They should be able to find the people that sell them, know who actually wants to buy them and how to speak to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
I think like we've covered a, we've covered a lot. Uh, we covered a lot about marketing, a lot about your company, a lot about all this stuff. But we haven't really talked very much about on a personal note. So just to kind of conclude uh, this interview, kind of change gears a little bit. I know that you're uh, you've used and you're uh, I guess I'll call you a 3D printer enthusiast. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> so I actually had a question about this. So, you know, I, I saw them become useful for larger businesses, um, especially when I worked for uh, BlackBerry. And then um, I saw I saw them become financially accessible uh, to almost um, anyone for a little while. So I saw people buying them off of random sites. Then it's like, oh, here, you know, put in the resin, yada, yada. It's only like 300 bucks and you have a little 3D printer. But then I, I haven't really heard much about them since. So like, what is your take on them? Like, are they a fad? What's next for them? Or are they really the thing that was advertised to us when they first came out? Like the, you know, the future of manufacturing where everything's printed, metal, plastic, it doesn't matter, right? I assume my expertise is more in Wonderkin than it is on these topics, but I am an enthusiast. Uh, in the way that I was the biggest skeptic of VR and 3D printing until the pandemic hit, where I was like, I had some spare time and I lived in my, I, I, my, I kind of, took my family into my country home in Pennsylvania for a while. We're like, what are we going to do with ourselves? And I originally got into it through lasers. I wanted a laser to cut and build and prototype. I'm a board game enthusiast. So I would build and prototype board gaming components and different things. And um, when, it's a very similar maker space. And um, what I bought into uh, allowed me to you know, cut and do laser stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll also be able to print and make some prototyping things for, for that. And that, that tends to be small scale, right? Uh, with its board gaming components and stuff. It doesn't tend to be very large. And um, I was kind of blown away of the quality of what I was able to produce and create with what I had. And I kind of limitless free things out there that I could modify or use. And if I was, you know, full time as a hobby, less as a, as a, I have a lot of children I <laughs> get to play with and hang out. Um, I thought it was, um, it was amazing. And I tell you one of the reasons I found really valuable, even as a father, which is, I, I made this up, but maybe someone else has said this, which is you always, when you have a 3D printer, you'll always be printing. Right, you hear the, the adage of like always be selling uh, from sales, or whatever. But it takes forever to make something great, especially something large. So you always have to be printing. And for me, that's a very busy person. My mind's all over the place all the time. I need to always be thinking about something, and I'm excited about it, and I'm producing it maybe on my machine or in the, the side window and my lunch break or whatever, or or um, after hours a little bit. And um, but I don't actually have to commit to printing that thing or making that thing or, or committing it to something. You have like a fleeting 10 minutes because I go down and peel something off. I'm like, this is amazing. And I immediately hit the next button, right? Because if it's going to take day, two, three days sometimes to do something you want to do, you always got to be printing. And so um, that was actually a really neat thing for me, which is I could do a lot of put my enthusiasm into understanding, learning and figuring out what I want to do. And it just meant that I had, you know, I had just hit print when it was the time and I didn't, wasn't all consuming. Although it's always printing and we would check on it, my kids and my children and I would go and check on it. It was like a really beautiful thing. It was almost like the old days of shrinky dinks or something where you would you would um, have this like craft. Um, it was really amazing. So we had a really good time. We built and printed dinosaur bones and we really learned a lot about them. We printed tools and different things. I baby proof in, in May house, making my own kind of cool baby, baby proofing and such for my new baby I had at the time. Um, I just found that there was just a, um, there's something about unlocking uh, you're, it's like, you know, the phrase closer to the metal, right? If you're doing, you're an engineer, you're like, sometimes you use technologies that are closer to the metal. And mm -hmm. this idea that you're so close to creating and making something and something can be so close to your hand that it's very even freeing and, and it's, it's really beautiful. So I don't know. I, um, I almost felt it like I had like a weird connection with it and I'm really excited about it. So, um, yeah, I don't know from a corporate, like uh, prototyping product design kind of thing from industrial design. 
I'm, uh, as much as I do for my own world, which is I built and made and solved real problems that I actually had in my life. Like my mom broke an antique and I was able to fix it, right? And I found that really empowering. And I'm a person that's like, likes making and building and having power over that and, and having control and, and um, solving my own problems. So it was, it was beautiful. That's a really interesting take on the uh, it's almost like it's it's passively allowing you to do your hobby without you having to, you know, physically be there. You know, you let it you have to let it print for two days, but, you know, you put the energy in now it's doing it. I mean, you can't do anything else and you can go and do your family stuff, your work stuff or whatever. That's interesting, um, especially when everything or not everything else, I'm sure. But a lot of other hobbies require you to, like, be there, like at the lake or like doing something constantly. Right. And your full attention is required. So that's that's interesting. And I've never I've never uh, I've. Only have, the only thing I've ever seen from friends is usually like fun stuff, if you will, like, oh, I'll make a little statue of like Zelda or something, you know, for my desk yeah. and then I'll print that. But I've never really seen much, not too much functional. I think someone made me a phone stand. So that was kind of cool. But but yeah. it's interesting to hear like different, especially like the dinosaur bones and stuff for your kids. That's an interesting take on it. Yeah, there's there's some real world applications that if you're actually excited about solving real world problems, you can get good with some of the software. And um, it was it was pretty good. And um, I think um, very, very cheap 3D printing. I think magic will be very frustrating um, because you're not getting the the, the, the the fidelity that you actually need to solve problems. You're just getting like maybe some visual fun toys and such. But um, I was able to, very fortunately, to, to get something, I think, on like more of the second tier, which, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it built beautiful, neat little things with different colors and different materials. And there's something really neat about exploring that chemistry, right? Like it's almost like a, little baby hot glue gun that just makes and does things <laughs> and, it, and it and it unfolds over time how often do things slow in our lives now you have to slow down with your thoughts and think about what's next it takes at least hours if not days and so that's a really neat thing right um it kind of gave me like a round a roundness to like the background of all the crazy things i'm doing in my job and stuff i can always kind of have this like neat thing that i'm thinking about of like what am i doing in two days and what, what am i preparing to put on or, or print so yeah, I don't know. It feels like a full philosophical change I had. I, I like the Zen take on three D printing right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that at some point. Meditating while you're just like watching it, watching it grow, watching your little statue or whatever it is you're, you're building grow there. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, well, Richie, I, uh, this has been a really great show, and uh, I'm really glad you came on. And um, you know, I'd like to offer you the floor right now to do any self pitches. You know, personal socials, work stuff doesn't matter whatever you want to say websites whatever it is go ahead you have the floor take it away okay i maybe i'll just give you 60 seconds is that appropriate oh yeah go ahead absolutely i i think something that's really important that didn't get woven into any of these conversations which is my role as a father and as a parent and in in, in a business professional and i see the role of of women and um in tech or in in just any business of uh, in mothers and our responsibility to making sure we're supporting parents differently. I think there's so often I see my world around me and individuals and up and comers and opportunities single people have, and it's really cool and making sure that we're kind of thoughtful and understanding and making it very easy for parents and other people to, to be supported in the same way. So that's something close to my heart that we, I think are doing at Wonderkin better to make sure that we're preparing for a better future for our employees and their children. Uh, our legacy is in those people and those young minds, and I will never give that up. Uh, outside of this office, I do that really well. And I want to make sure that uh, people out there know that how important that is. And that's a really incredibly important part of what we strive for and what we're trying to do here as a company is just make sure we have that legacy and be building towards a future for those, those young people in our, in our families and such. So um, they were really why I'm here and my, my family specifically. And 
I would just uh, make sure that uh, you're understanding and understanding that, that there's, if you're not a, in a family situation or, you know, like uh, how to support those individuals. I, I think single mothers are the greatest people and most amazing people that can be amazing on their job. They can be here and there. And then they also raise these incredible people, the, the heroes that you don't always think about and such. And so um, if that's the form uh, I leave you with, I think that that is the best I can and do. Um, so thank you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for those comments and thank you for coming on. I'm sure our audience will appreciate uh, un unword souping the soup. I don't know. That wasn't very good. You, you, you're, you're, a, you're a slogan guy, right? You can probably fix that up. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, no, uh, but, uh, but yeah, thank you very much, Richie, for, uh, for coming on. And uh, uh, we'd uh, like to uh, have you on in the future once we, uh, once we have like some more questions for you. Oh, I'd love that. And if there's anything we can go deeper on in the specifics, we, we covered a lot. Um, and I'd be happy to. It's a nice conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it, Richie. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Richie as much as we did. Personally, I enjoy learning about all kinds of different aspects of our field, meaning web design, but marketing is really sort of tied to web design in that a lot of websites are literally marketing sites. A lot of websites are literally for marketing agencies. And of course, as an influencer or a person who wants to be on social media or who wants to have their own blog, you kind of sort of have to market yourself a little bit. So it's good to sort of talk about all these different aspects, all these different professions that all tie things together. And of course, marketing can go in many other different directions and go in many and work with rather many other different fields than just web design. But marketing is super, super important in web design. So that was a really great conversation. Now, if you enjoy the conversation and you enjoy this show, because you absolutely should if you made it this far and you want to support it, you can do so on patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript via YouTube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design via LocalPathComputing.com, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via BlueBlackDigital.com, Chris from SelfMade Web Designer via SelfMadeWebDesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on TheWebHacker.com, DL Ford from DLFord.io, Bib Hashdash from 9Block Media via 9BlockMedia.com, and Jason from Geek Life Radio via GeekLifeRadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, and Jeff from Twitter via at TheRithic. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.